You pressed play on this podcast with the click of curiosity. It is another dimension, a dimension of mind, a dimension where nothing is sacred and everything is explainable. You're streaming into a land of both inside and outside of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the midside. Welcome to the midside where we're always fully boosted on life. I'm your host, Justin M. Lesneski, and I retroactively and proactively denounce anything anyone has ever said or will say on this show. It's going to be a solo episode this week. William is busy with some complicated, I don't even know how to describe it because it's so outside of my realm of knowledge and realm of expertise, uh, information security issue. Uh, he sent me some stuff about it, and I still have no idea what, what the fuck he's talking about. Right? He sent me a text. Well, So I texted him, and I was like, okay, I'm going to do a solo episode because of timing. And he said, that's great because I'm dealing with, and then it was just, to me, an incoherent stream of gibberish is what he sent back. And I know it isn't gibberish. I just know that it's so far beyond my realm of understanding that I was like, all right, this this makes sense then. If this is so high level that you can't even record and you need the time and so high level that I don't understand any of what you just said, it's probably best you don't record. So William is dealing with that. Uh, I think people are talking about it on the internet. It's like something to do with zero. I don't know. I, I think it's like the complete destruction of something. You've probably heard about it. You probably know more about it than I do. So if you want to, you know, write in and talk about how much of an idiot I am and how I should be more educated, that's fine by me. That's fine by me because I really don't understand any of it. But I had a lot to do with wrestling this weekend. Uh, My wife and I are going to go to Epcot in a little bit here. So it really made sense just to do a solo episode. And there's a lot that I can honestly just talk about and rant about. So I don't even need someone to play off of for this episode. But before we get into all that, I want to remind you that you can support the show via Patreon or Locals. As always, Patreon is per episode, Locals is per month. That's the midside.com slash Patreon or the midside.com slash Locals. We accept any and all support, including affirmations. And also, I'd like to remind you that if you join the Discord channel, and you know how to do that, right? Just go to midside.com slash podcast, click on any episode link, you can find the link to join the discord there you can go to the channel for the peak farce awards and you can make your nominations and vote in the midsider award which you get to give and decide which story was peak farce this year already had some great nominations in there would love to hear your nominations for the peak farce awards this year because we'll be recording that next week and that will be our last episode for a while which will get me through the heart of wrestling season get all of us through the holidays although i don't i honestly don't know how any of us are going to survive the holidays because not everyone is fully vaccinated or fully boosted it's so crazy to me how and of course you know i'm going to start talking a little bit of covid right because what what's america what's what's the world in the year 2021 without some discussion of covid It's crazy to me how everything has pivoted now. It's pivoted. It's not about being vaccinated anymore. It's about being boosted. And there's this whole article in The Atlantic. It says, what does fully vaccinated mean? Oh, this is interesting. So the, okay, here's the top. When you scroll over at the top of the tab, it says, what does fully vaccinated mean in the booster era? But the title on the actual article is How to Socialize Safety in the Booster Error. So it looks like somebody changed the title, but they forgot to change it in the HTML coding. So this this is all about essentially how complicated things are nowadays, how complicated things are nowadays. And the best way to explain this without reading the whole article, because one of the things I, I, I hate about The Atlantic, and I don't know if anyone else has noticed this, is They use a lot of words to say a little bit. So this article repeats itself a lot. Basically what it's saying is we don't know what anyone's status is anymore because it's impossible to know. By the way, it was always impossible to know. 
Always impossible to know. But they're like, oh, how many vaccines have you had? Which vaccines have you had? How many boosters have you had? They even mentioned in here brand mixing, brand mixing, as if that's a bad thing, right? If you take the, the Pfizer shot and the Moderna booster, wouldn't that increase my odds of survival? Wouldn't that make things safer? I don't know. I don't know, but it's interesting that's even a thing. So that's essentially what the whole article is talking about over and over. It also has an interesting uh, refrain uh, where it keeps bringing up five-year-olds can't get vaccinated yet. Five-year-olds can't get vaccinated yet. Okay. Really? We're, we're, we're going to really complain about that? Like it's uh, that that much of a moral failing on our society that five-year-olds can't get vaccinated? I don't have a five-year-old, but I would not want my five-year-old to get vaccinated. Even if I were to get vaccinated, I would not want my five-year-old to get vaccinated. Regardless, the the easiest way is to explain this article is to read the last couple paragraphs. Indeed, as complicated as vaccinate, indeed as complicated as vaccination statuses are now, they might become even more complicated in the future. The threat posed by Omicron is currently unclear, but it, but if it turns out to be more contagious, deadlier, and able to dodge our existing vaccines, by the way, able to dodge our existing vaccines, do you like how they're almost attributing a sentience to this virus as if it's making choices, like able to dodge our existing vaccines? Is this, is this a running back? Is this a wide receiver who has a lot of yards after the catch? Like, this makes you think of, like, the vaccine, the, the virus out there, it sees the vaccine, it, like, does a spin move or it stiff arms it, right? Able to dodge our existing vaccines. An additional dose formulated specifically, oh, not specifically, specially, although specifically would have made more sense there, for Omicron may be necessary. At this point, people's vaccine sequences would be even more varied. Some people would be getting their fourth shot, while others would get an Omicron-specific dose as their first. There's two really sort of disturbing things here for me. The first is, you know, what most people are talking about. Right? We, we hear this on the internet all the time, the comparison of, like, the clean and the unclean. Creating a society where, based upon your vaccination status or your booster status or who you got it from, you're allowed certain privileges or treated a certain way, right? To me, these are not essential characteristics based to should decide how we treat people. And also when we start talking about getting government involved, there's a much, there's a big difference, a much bigger chasm or much bigger issue with government deciding how to treat people based upon all of these conditions, vaccines and boosters and Omicron specific or whatever. Right now, I would say even personally, you shouldn't do it. But when government starts getting involved with that as well, that is super, super, to steal a term, problematic. And, and it's just, you know, everyone's talking about that. That's that's the sort of more obvious sort of problem. And I think we all know the problems with that one. But to me, another problem with this is, I mean, think about what this is saying. Some would be getting their fourth shot, while others would get an Omicron-specific dose as their first. At what point are we spending too much time and pumping too much, too many, yeah, too many, too many chemicals into our body? This is becoming, I, I don't, look, I don't know how psychologists don't look at this and say this is becoming obsessive. Is this not obsessive compulsive behavior? Is this not OCD behavior? And look, I'm not claiming to be an expert or anything, but I'm raising the question. At what point is it if you're getting four doses or with every variant that comes out? Are you? Do you have a psychological issue? That's my question. If you keep every time there's a new variant or every time they say you need to get a, you know, there's an improved version, right? They're acting like this is like DLC, downloadable content, right? Or like an update that po that's posted to your phone, that that's that's pushed to your phone. 
right? Every time like an app updates, it pushes your phone, you download it, right? You click the button. And I'm not even going to lie. Like I turned auto updates off and it's still telling me like I have 77 updates on my phone. So I don't even do that because that takes time, right? But let's think about this even more. You have to go somewhere. You have to have somebody cause you physical pain. Now it's a very minor amount of physical pain, but not for everyone. Don't want to disrespect anyone who, you know, cries when they get a shot or it's very painful, right? Especially because you could get a shot five times and the, the fifth time is the only time it hurts, right? Because especially how they how they inject it. Remember, this is not just somebody is injecting a substance into your body. They're, they're sticking something into your body, right? They're taking metal and sticking it into your body. That's not without risk. That's not without risk. And that's really what I'm saying here, right? You're doing that. Think about how much time that's taking and how much of your own time you're risking. What could you be investing that time in otherwise? What could you be investing that time in otherwise? And how much risk are you taking with every other new dose? Why is it? And this is the question I've had from the beginning. This is the question I've had from the beginning. Why is COVID this bad? Why is COVID this bad? Especially as we see things develop, as we see things develop and we see Everything they were telling us at the beginning is overblown and overhyped, but we still haven't let go of this idea. It's like they tell you someone's a bad person, and then he can never disprove it. Or in sports, they tell you someone's a bad player. Let's take Mac Jones, for instance. Mac Jones has this stink on him now, where they said in the draft he wasn't a good enough quarterback. They, they said he had this uh, high ceiling, no, high floor, low ceiling. Whatever the fuck that means, right? That's supposed to mean something like, oh, well, he can't really develop that much, but when he comes into the league, he's starting at a better place than everyone else. So the basic argument is he doesn't have as much potential as everyone else, but coming into the league, he's more of a known commodity. So he's a finished product. Everybody isn't. So he's not as good because he's not a finished. None of it makes any sense, but he has this stink on him. Right, this stink on him that everything he does, it's like, oh well, he's not that good. He's not that good. Or, you know, because he was the most pro ready, as they said, because of his high floor, because he was on the Patriot, that demi- the Patriots, that diminishes what he does. It's the same thing here. It doesn't matter what's done to show that COVID isn't that bad. It has that stink on it from the beginning of, oh, we need to shut down the world. We need to shut down the world or everyone's gonna die. When that was never the case. We are living in a world where we see what would happen if COVID, if we had just let COVID happen from the beginning. The only difference is there's some people out there who get vaccines and stuff to convince themselves it's making a large difference when it isn't. And that and that's that's my concern here. Right. That's my concern here. My concern here is we are creating a psychologically, if we're not already living in it, psychologically afraid society. That we're irrationally approaching how we should deal with this virus. And any virus. Anytime something happens, you go get a shot. That's like anytime you have a headache, you take aspirin. Or whatever your preferred painkiller is, right? Anytime you have pain. I mean, one of the wrestlers on my team, a freshman, turned her ankle a little bit and it's bruised on the side. And it's really the side slash front of her foot that's bruised. And, you know, it's a little bit of pain when she steps, but she can, in all intents and purposes, continue to practice and wrestle. But to be safe, and I understand this, her parents brought her to the doctor and the doctor gave her some painkillers. I understand going to the doctor, but I talked to her and I, I, you know, I made sure she said, I made sure she understood. I said, okay, I'm, if you want to take those, that's fine. And if your parents want you to take it, I understand that's your decision, but I just want you to be aware of that. You don't want to become reliant on using painkillers every time you feel pain. Because that is that is the road to addiction, right? It's treating minor things with major solutions, right? It's saying there's a traffic jam. Let's destroy the highway and build a whole new highway. And that creates more of a problem. That's what this is. And that's what this is with COVID, right? We're creating a society where we are terrified of germs and we judge people's morality based on it. I mean, did you guys see the story about the the Finnish prime minister 
this 36-year-old woman who was apparently possibly exposed and she didn't get the text telling her to stay home because it was on her work phone and she went out clubbing. First of all, the the prime minister of any country going clubbing is in itself hilarious, farcical. But the fact that she did it when she knew she apparently she knew she was potentially exposed, but because she's fully vaccinated and now we see this article, well, how boosted is she? How boosted is she? Are they just going to create clubs that are named boosted and only people who are boosted can go in there? Right. And how mad are people who steal cars right now? Their term has been taken from them. Right. Being boosted means something different now. But yeah, so she goes to the club and then she has to apologize for it. First of all, if this doesn't show you that everything's not that bad. Oh, I just got a shot. I got a shot. I can go out. Right. If the virus was that deadly and you it was that dangerous, even if you were fully vaccinated and you got a shot, you would not go out. So what does that tell you when the when a government official, the prime minister of Finland, goes out? Now, tells us a couple of things. One, you know, something that we could fall into here in the midside is making it seem like government officials are different than we are. A lot of them aren't. A lot of them aren't. I mean, a lot of people like to believe in these conspiracies where there's like, you know, the, the two class system and there's the elites and everything. And that may very well be true. And I have some sympathies for that. And I do think there are people out there like that. But a lot of the people working in the government are just as susceptible to the culture as all of us are. And I think this prime minister is a perfect example of it. She bought into this whole idea of, oh, as long as you get vaccinated, you're fine. Right. As long as you follow what you're supposed to, you're fine. I mean, it's kind of refreshing in a way that there's a government official who is being obedient when saying you need to be obedient. And, you know, the argument, of course, is going to be this is the same as like when Gavin Newsom went to dinner or Nancy Pelosi went to the hairdresser. No, they didn't do anything to protect themselves. She at least protected herself. Right. This Marin, the the prime minister here, at least protected herself. So it's a little bit different, but it shows how everyone is susceptible to this. But to return to the Atlantic article, there's something here that's much more sort of insidious to me, much more insidious, and it's the last paragraph. So let me read it to you. But over time, the distinctions around boosters and timing and brands should fade in importance. As the pandemic continues, more and more people will develop immunity, whether by getting vaccinated or by recovering from an infection. At a certain point, we will stop paying attention just because overall immunity will be higher. For now, the complexity is stressful, but at least it's a side effect of something good, namely that more people can get more protection from the virus. The complexity will eventually pass, but thankfully, the advantages of vaccines won't so this 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 last paragraph might be seen as a win for some people they're tacitly acknowledging natural immunity here right they're tacitly acknowledging natural immunity here and they're saying what matters is overall immunity so we won't care as long as this passes now i'm not going to get into the argument of changing the goalposts right we've gone from two weeks to flatten the curve to overall immunity being higher is what's going to get us out of this That goes back to my previous point about we're never going to be out of this. It's just always get the next shot, do the next thing you need to do. Because what's insidious about this is this is the middle ground. This is the middle ground that is being developed in our culture. The middle ground is, yeah, overall immunity is good, and you will either get vaccinated or get get infected and recover. So there's no, hey, you know, maybe you won't get it. There's no, hey, focus on personal choice. This is purely pragmatic. It's purely pragmatic and it oversimplifies everything into you get vaccinated or you get infected. And those are the only two ways for there to be immunity. Don't there have to be people out there who already have immunity? I mean, statistically, isn't how that works? Right? There are people who are super susceptible to it and there are people who are super unlikely to get it. Isn't that how reality works statistically? And again, this goes back to how bad you think the virus is. 
But this is sort of, as I said, the insidious middle ground that's sort of being developed, which is, I mean, the midside. The midside doesn't mean middle ground, right? The midside means looking at everything that's going on and taking a step and being beyond it. You know, you're not in any group. You're not in any group. You're between all the groups. You're not finding the middle ground, but you're looking at all the groups and you're focused on reality. You're not inside. You're not outside. You know, you're not in the inside in group. You're not outside the group. You're both in the group and outside the group at the same time. So you're the midside and you can see what's going on. It's not a middle ground. This middle ground is terrifying. This middle ground is terrifying because it's conceding the point that we need to live our life based on this virus. And that has been my concern from the beginning. I will not live my life based on a virus that is not super deadly and super infectious. Notice I said and there. Something can be super infectious and not a concern because it's not super deadly. That's the problem. We're not properly assessing reality, but we are conceding that we need to live our lives based upon this. That you either get vaccinated or you get infected. There are no other choices. And that's that's not realistic. That's not realistic. All right, let's move on from the COVID talk to a lot of sports talk, a lot of sports talk, a lot of sports talk here. So if you're not a sports person, maybe tune out. But what I would say is this. Hopefully, if you've listened to this show for long enough and you've appreciated my takes on art because you see that there's value to art that applies to all of life, you would see that, first of all, I see sports as art. And that was a, I know... I don't know how much we went into it with Daniel, but I know Daniel wanted to address that when he was still a, a regular member of the, the show, a regular host on the show. He wanted to go into something, but I believe it's art. And also, I believe it applies to life in general. And I'm going to start by giving you an example. I'm going to start by giving you an example from the wrestling tournament I coached yesterday. So I'm recording this on Sunday. The wrestling tournament is on Saturday. And... Essentially what happens is you stand in your wrestler's corner and you give the wrestler advice or you try. It's really hard, especially with a girls tournament when you yell and everyone's yelling louder at you and nobody can hear you. So it's like, why am I standing there? But you give them advice, right? You help them. And you also, you know, you watch the match and you see what's going on with the refs and everything. Now, if you have an issue with a ref's call, you're allowed to walk to the center table and raise your hand. Because right, in the front of the mat, there's a table where the scorekeepers are. And the ref you know, holds up two points. They have to give two points. They keep the time and everything. So I have never done this in my life before. I have never, as a coach, walked to the center table and contested a call. I've never done it. I just, look, I, I, I'm not that kind of person. I generally don't argue things or anything. And I'm definitely not going to anymore after this. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Because of the current culture. I definitely think the current culture is an issue. I have an issue with it. But I don't know if me just deciding it's it, it's futile to, to protest is a good or a bad thing. I, it's definitely going to keep me out of trouble. But I don't know if my desire to stay out of trouble is a, is a good or a bad thing here. So... Our wrestler was up 2 nothing. My wrestler was up 2 nothing. Then she, then she gets taken down and quickly turned to her back, but then she quickly rolled through it, right? So to get back points, you have to have the back past 90 degrees towards the mat for at least two seconds, right? If they count two seconds, that's two back points. And if they count five seconds, that's five back points. This is, of course, they roll back to their stomach. If you pin them, you don't get any back points, right? So if I turn you to your back, past 90 degrees, your back is exposed to the mat for two seconds, and then you get back to your stomach, that's two points. If you, if I turn you to your back, and it's exposed for five seconds, and you get back to your stomach, that's three points. All right, so our wrestler got taken down, turned to her back, and then turned to her stomach very quickly. I didn't even think it was back points, right? I didn't think it was quick enough for back points. Then I look at the clock. And the score's four to two. The ref gave the takedown, which is worth two points, and the two back points. So I wait to the end of the period, and I go to the middle of the mat. 
I go to the middle of the mat and I raise my hand. I go to the main table and I raise my hand and the the ref looks at me and he go and he's like, "Yes." And I said, "Was that quick enough for back points?" And he said, "I counted it." And I said, "Okay." And then what he said next blew my mind. He said, "If you question my call again, I will hit you with unsportsmanlike." That would mean in the tournament our team would lose a team point. So again, I said to him, was that quick enough for back points? I didn't yell. I wasn't. I mean, I guess it's necessarily confrontational, but I wasn't aggressive. And he said to me, I counted it. And I said, OK. And then he said, if you question my judgment again, I will hit you with unsportsmanlike. What is the point of the mechanism for questioning a call if you're not allowed to question a call? Why is it when someone's a referee, they're in a position that they are unquestioned? They're an unquestioned authority. This is not a Supreme Court justice. This is not somebody who it's been decided based upon how the system is set up that they are the ultimate final arbiter of things. Right. If a ref is bad enough, there are ways to go and challenge results and, and take it to a higher level. Now, it's not, I'm not going to do it over two back points in a, in a match where my girl eventually got pinned. My wrestler eventually got pinned. I could do that, but there are. He's not the ultimate authority. So why can rational discussion not exist? Why can rational discourse not exist? Why is that unsportsmanlike to question a call? I, I'm extremely bothered by that, especially because... Look, I played soccer from second grade and I, you know, I played, you know, uh, intramural in college. But, you know, I played all the way through high school on the varsity team. I got one yellow card my entire life. I am not known for being unsportsmanlike. As a coach, I do not yell at people. Right. I push people. I'm demanding. I want high intensity. I want commitment. I want discipline. But I don't yell at people. I don't see it as fruitful i don't see it as rational i don't see it as healthy i've seen other coaches. there was a coach yesterday who told the girl you know do you want to actually wrestle or do you want to forfeit this match he was basically saying if she doesn't start to try harder he's going to forfeit the match which i think is completely inappropriate i would never say something like that i might say do you want to wrestle today it doesn't look like you want to wrestle it doesn't look like you're ready to wrestle Let's go. You got to focus in. You got to lock in. I might say that, but I wouldn't like passive aggressively threaten her. And I certainly didn't do the same thing to the ref. So I'm confused as to why that is the, the common culture. That because he says, oh, you know, this is what I said. Me simply saying, you know, was that quick enough for back points? Warrants unsportsmanlike. So basically, I can't fucking talk to the guy. I can't say anything ever. Doesn't make any sense. Now I went to the head table, not the the table for the map, but for the overall tournament. I asked, and somebody explained to me that he used to get hit with unsportsmanlike a lot in the beginning, until he started phrasing things differently, where he would say, "You know, can you explain to me the rules for back exposure because I'm a bit confused as to the score and where those two points came from." Now. I, this is what I don't understand as a coach, right? As a coach. Look, I get that I'm not Bill Belichick, right? I get that I'm not Bill Belichick. But the referee is just ultimately an expert, more of an expert than any coach, so that coaches have to approach them in that way with, with kids' gloves? You have, to, you have to soft play it there? You have to soft play it there? I mean, here's the thing. Here's the thing. The issue isn't my not understanding the rules. And if I phrase it that way, that is me pretending reality is different than it is. The issue is, I didn't think our girl, my girl's, my wrestler's back was exposed for two seconds. I didn't. So the issue is, when really, when did he think the back exposure started? Now, maybe my problem is, you know, it's a random batch and a random tournament in December and I shouldn't have said anything. 
Maybe that's the issue. But that's the point. Now I'm at the point where I have to start thinking about what's the point of challenging and when's the right time to challenge rather than, oh, you know, it's, it's normal to have a discussion here. It's normal to just have a discussion about what the issue is. Because now I can't. Because now I know every time I do, it's going to be seen as unsportsmanlike. Which I, I, maybe it is the expertise thing. It's maybe because I look so young. Maybe because I look so young, he's like, I'm not going to let this young kid push me around. But it's really like, I just, I asked a question. I wasn't unsportsmanlike. And the, the fact that he was like, I'm going to hit you with unsportsmanlike if you question my judgment again. It's like, are you serious? Are you serious? I just, just a general issue I have with people with this heightened sense of importance. I mean, this is something Adam Carolla talks about, right? You give somebody a, a menial job with a little bit of power and they really exercise it over you. That's what it felt like. But that's the point. The point is helping the wrestlers. Helping the girls improve and become better people and have better lives. And if you're focused on telling the coach that's not unsportsmanlike that he's being unsportsmanlike, what are you teaching them? Again, you're teaching them pure obedience to authority. Pure obedience to authority. And that's not a good thing to teach. A couple other things I wanted to touch on with sports here. A couple other things I wanted to touch on with sports. Uh, The first is a couple year-end awards handed out here. Sports Illustrated gave their sportsman, sportsperson, whatever you want to say of the year to Tom Brady. Pretty crazy that there was such a big gap between the two times they gave it to him, right? The, the, the first time was during the first three Patriots Super Bowl runs. Now this one's after he won his seventh, seventh Super Bowl, his first with another team. That's nuts. But to me, it stands in stark contrast to who Time Magazine gave Athlete of the Year to. Time Magazine gave Athlete of the Year to Simone Biles. And... They gave it to Simone Biles, not for anything she did on the mat, but for how she withdrew from the Olympics for her mental health. Now, to me, this is a question about what makes someone an athlete, right? Remember, this is the award for athlete of the year. Athlete of the year. I'm going to read a couple paragraphs for you here. An athlete's clout is increasingly measured in much more than wins and losses. If 2020 showcased the power of athletes as activists after the murder of George Floyd, this year demonstrated how athletes are uniquely positioned to propel mental health to the forefront of a broader cultural conversation. While a few sports stars have opened up about mental health, Michael Phelps, for instance, has been candid about his post-Olympic depression in 2021, the discussion became more wide-reaching and sustained. After withdrawing from the French Open in May to prioritize her well-being, citing anxiety, Naomi Osaka wrote in a Time cover essay, It's okay not to be okay. Biles, by dint of her status at one of the world's most watched events, raised the volumes. I do raise the volume. I do believe everything happens for a reason, and there was a purpose, she tells Time in an interview nearly four months later. Not only did I get to use my voice, but it was validated as well. So now I'm scrolling to the end here. So when a young, so when a female, uh, sorry, when a black female athlete like Biles takes visible steps to safeguard her own mental and physical health to indicate that it's worth protecting, that action carries a special power. Plummer has noticed that since Tokyo, more personal professional contacts have initiated conversations about their mental health. This is significant as researchers found that many black women feel they must protect an image of invulnerability and the stigma around mental health deters them from seeking health help. And although black adults are more likely than white ones to report symptoms of emotional distress, only one in three black adults who need mental health care receives it. It's a privilege of people who have money to see a therapist, says Reuben Bufford May, a professor of sociology at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign who studies race and culture intertwined with that is that African-Americans have disproportionately been among the poor and have not been able to have health care to pay for mental health services. 
then it you know continues here with all this stuff about inequities and things like that. So think about this for a minute. Think about this for a minute. This is the athlete of the year. So the athlete of the year is being given this award not for not for any achievements on the mat where she or the balance beam or the bar wherever she performs her routines, right? Not for anything she actually did as an athlete. Now, the argument is going to be that well an athlete is a full person, so because she is an athlete, then her taking care of her mental health is part of her being an athlete. Okay, yes, that's a given. But what's the point of the word athlete then? Right? Why don't we just say person of the year? And if they had said person of the year, my second critique here would be my only main problem of this. So she's not given athlete of the year for anything she did athletically. Right? And yes, you need to take care of yourself to be able to perform athletically. I agree. She's not given it for anything she did for herself. Right? If she was a white woman, this article would not read the same way. Because they've made this about, she did this, and it's good because what it does for other black women. Other black women. And by the way, I love in here they say that um, black women feel they must project an image of invulnerability. And the stigma around mental health deters them from seeking help. Could someone explain to me why that's unique to black women? This is something I have trouble in general with, with race conversations. They always say all these things, right? People, I don't want to say they. People always say, and I've heard it from different people, different walks of life, kids, adults, all different roles. Read it in the media, right? Hear it in my personal life. That certain races and certain genders or whatever, whatever group you want to apply things to, they'll say something like, oh, well, they suffer a lot of anxiety. Have you ever met people who anxiety doesn't affect? Same thing here. They must project an image of invulnerability. Isn't that image of invulnerability just coming from the fact that we don't show our vulnerability to people we don't trust intimately? I I just don't get this idea that there's certain groups that this affects more. And I also don't get this idea that it's bad to not... Let's think of like an animal. Does every animal when it comes up to you, show you its stomach. No, because it, it hasn't established that trust and intimacy with you. So why is this, why is the idea that people appear invulnerable to other people a bad thing? Why is it a bad thing? First of all, if you have any fucking brains in your head, you know people aren't invulnerable. So you know that person's got shit they're dealing with. Like that became a meme on the internet at, at a certain point. Just know everyone's fighting their own battles and has their own demons. First of all, not everyone has extreme mental health issues that I would use the words demons for. But yes, just like everyone is not 100% healthy all the time physically, everyone is not healthy all the time mentally. That is a given. But do you want everyone to walk around all day and be like, oh, my back's really hurting today. Oh, today I'm nauseous. Oh, today I have a headache. Same thing. Oh, do you want somebody to be like, oh, today I'm experiencing a lot of anxiety. Look, I have had... Days where bad things happened and I needed to tell other people, hey, this is what I'm going through mentally. Right. When I have extreme, you know, I can think of one day this year where I had extreme anxiety and fear to the point that I couldn't perform my normal duties because I really believe my my livelihood was being possibly endangered. I could see a situation where the, the way the rhetoric was going and the way the actions were taken, that I could be put into danger. Right? I saw that. But that's not something I do all the time. Like, when I'm having a down day, I don't, like, always tell people. I don't tell most people. I don't know if I tell anyone. Right? So this idea that, oh, it's better. You know, we're going to give this award to Simone Biles, Athlete of the Year, because it's more of an issue for black women. What? And also... Why does she have to represent that group? Why are we forcing her to represent that group? And we're only giving her the award because she represents that group. Now, you could say, hey, 
We're giving this award because an athlete dared stand up and say, I'm going to take care of my mental health. And somebody took care of herself. And she prioritized taking care of herself. And that shows everyone, regardless of race, religion, creed, age, whatever, whatever group you want to name, shows everyone to take care of your own mental health. I would say, okay, I understand the argument. Now, is it athlete of the year? We can have a discussion about that. But not only are we just sidestepping the discussion about athlete of the year, we are completely, we're dehumanizing her. We are not seeing her as a human. We are ironically trying to say, hey, she is taking care of who she is as a human, but we are not seeing her as a human. She is a representative, a symbol of a group. And it's ironic that when we're talking about mental health, why do you think she might have mental health issues? Do you think it it adds to the trauma she's been through or takes away from it that you're telling her she represents all other people who've been through the trauma she's been through? And on top of that, she represents all black women. Do you think that helps her or hurts her? So how can we give someone an award for mental health? How can we give someone an award for mental health and say, hey, We applaud you for what you've done by then doing things to hurt that person's mental health. Think about that for a second. So this entire thing by Time Magazine, I guess we shouldn't be surprised that Time Magazine did something shitty, but this entire thing by them, terrible, awful, terrible, awful. And talking about terrible and awful takes, terrible and awful takes related to sports, Midsider Lucid sent me this article, which I, I, this is, this is beyond me. This is beyond me. The reaction to it's beyond me, right? He he sent me a a tweet about it. Let me see if I can dig up that tweet here in a second. But, but the, uh, this is a New York times article. It says, can an athlete's blood enhance brain power? Essentially, essentially the idea is proteins linked to physical exercise and this is a quote, have shown in recent studies to improve cognition in mice. So obviously athletes exercise more physically, therefore they'll have more of those proteins, therefore they can improve cognition. Where are those proteins found? In the blood. So then, can an athlete's blood increase brain power? And to read the final paragraph here, Whichever proteins end up being promising, it would be safer to develop a medication than to try to transfuse blood, which would contain other things besides the proteins, said Dr. Tanzi, who is not involved in the new study. The big question, he added, is which proteins are the winners and how do we take advantage of them to provide new therapies? Now, I don't think Dr. Tanzi said the first sentence of this paragraph. I don't think Dr. Tanzi said the first sentence of this paragraph. Uh, I also don't think he said the tweet. Oh. Sorry, hold on. I'm looking at the tweet. It was his tweet. So what I'm thinking of is the conversation he and I had, not what was actually said. It's the implication here. So I'm just going to continue talking about this paragraph. then, Because there is a implied, there is a tacit point to this question, and to this final paragraph. And there's something missing here, right? And again, I don't think Dr. Tanzi, the person being quoted, is saying the first half. There's the, the way this is written, the second half is in quotes. The big question is which proteins are the winners and how do we take advantage of them to provide new therapies? That's in quotes. But the first part, which they're implying, he said... They're implying it by saying, said Dr. Tanzi, but it's not in quotes. So I don't believe their paraphrase of him is correct because the second part is correct. The big question is which proteins are the winners and how do we take advantage of them to provide new therapies? That's right. How do we take advantage of them? That's the scientific question. What's the best method of doing this? Now, this is the paraphrase. Whichever proteins end up being promising, it will be safer to develop a medication than to transfuse blood. What's missing from here? Where do the proteins come from? The proteins come from exercise. So let me be clear here. 
The takeaway, according to this article, is other people should use the protein in athletes' blood in order to enhance their brain power. So the athlete puts in the efforts to exercise, which creates those proteins, which increases the athlete's brain power. And then somebody else wants to take those proteins and use it to enhance their own brain power. So something that is achieved through effort is going to be achieved not through effort, but by taking it. This is the same thing as what was done to Simone Biles. Her effort is not for herself, for her own life. Her effort is going to be used for the lives of other people. How much are we going to continue looking at reality showing us if you put an effort to take care of yourself and live a healthy life? And not even a healthy life. Just be productive, right? Be physically productive. Exercise. Right? Exert yourself every day. I don't even want to say productive. I want to say active. We're going to change it to active. Just be active, right? This is literally showing us they're learning, which this is one of those where science is backing up what seems obvious, right? If you are physically active, your body creates proteins that help improve your life. That seems obvious. But now we're saying the people who are inactive can get the proteins from the people who are active, and improve their lives. Now I get it. The big question is which proteins are the winners. And how do we take advantage of them to provide new therapies? To me new therapies would say. What exercises can we best do. To create those proteins. Right. Can we improve working out to that level. Right. Just know if same thing as. Just the same as if you do certain. You know. Motions you can grow muscle mass better or you do certain forms of conditioning, you know, you do HIIT training, you can get better cardio health, better health for your lungs, better conditioning, right? Better stamina. We learn all these things. So maybe we just get it down to the protein level. Maybe it's even more specific because our science has improved. And yes, maybe there are people who can't exercise. So we have mechanisms for filtering an athlete's blood that they can donate in order to help those people that to me would be a worthwhile charity and i mean that in the rational sense you value this and you know there are people who can't do it they physically can't or they mentally can't do it so you help them you help them i think that is a value and i think that is rational i think that is moral because it's not selfless you're saying hey This is something that's a value to me, and I want other people to share in this value, especially people who can't, right? But the idea, the idea that, oh, they're going to give this to us, and we're going to be inactive, but get the, the fruits of being active when we're inactive is disgusting. It's disgusting because you don't have a claim on somebody else's life, but also, What kind of a a standard are we setting there or are we continuing to set that we want to give people the fruits of being active while being inactive? And that can only lead to death. Because if you are given what you have to earn by being active and continue to be inactive, you will lose that. So then what happens? I mean, this is literally, you can almost picture this, right? Then what happens? Let's say running on a treadmill, and I'm using this very specifically. Running on a treadmill is how you get these proteins. You can almost see there are people whose entire job is to run on a treadmill, get these proteins, and take the proteins from them and give them to the people who are inactive. And then, let's say government gets involved in this and forces it. It says it's a legal requirement to redistribute, right? I'm just taking the have and have nots principle because you can very easily argue. And this is the, this is the part I haven't addressed yet, but this is where you can address it. Are certain people athletes and certain people not? Is that something you can't control? I don't agree with that. There may be people who are more athletically gifted, but anyone can be an athlete if you work hard enough. Now, here's the problem. 
they're going to say that naturally the people who are athletically gifted, let's take, let's say, Randy Moss, right? Randy Moss, that dude was a freak, right? That dude was a freak. That's why he's arguably the greatest wide receiver of all time. Sorry, Jerry Rice fans. Could you say because he has that privilege, he is obligated to share his proteins? Oh, this the, the way this article is framed is, is, is quite frankly disgusting and terrifying. Disgusting and terrifying. I think I'll leave you on that note. Leave you on that note. I think that's a great note to leave the last regular show of 2021. And I don't mean the, the animated show, the regular show. I mean the last edition of the Midside in 2021, the last regular. Next week, of course, will be our, our Peak Farce Awards. So get in the Discord and you know submit your nominations and votes for that. I want to thank you for listening. Like I always say, if it wasn't for you, this would just be me talking into a corner in the closet like a crazy person. I mean, it still is, especially this episode where I don't even have a co-host. But knowing that people listen to this and presumably enjoy it makes me feel a lot better. If you want to support the show, you can do so in a variety of ways. There's Patreon, there's Locals, the Midside.com says Patreon is per episode. Midside.com says Locals is per month. You can go to the store, Midside.com says store, get a t-shirt. Uh, you can also buy my novel, The Cut, the midside.com slash The Cut. That's been out for over a year now. That's crazy. I do know the next book I want to write. I won't say the title yet. It's a great title, but I just need more time. So over the next couple of years, once I get more time, I'm going to start writing that book. And also, you know, remember the best way you can grow the show, support the show, is to tell a friend. The more friends you tell, the more this community grows, the more people hopefully get enjoyment or improvement out of their lives from the show. I would like to think with how long the show's been going and how many, you know, twos, dozens, if we even have dozens, fives of loyal listeners we have, that there's some value from this show, maybe. Maybe. Regardless, thanks for listening. This concludes your journey into the midside. I'm Justin Emlinski reminding you that if things get tough, take a step back and witness the farce. Man, I really wish I had stuck the landing on that athlete's blood story. I was talking about the athletes on the treadmill when the picture of the article, the picture on the article in the New York Times is literally a rat on a wheel, around a wheel or a mouse on a wheel, because that's what they were studying, right? The irony, the irony that they're essentially saying we should put athletes on treadmills in the long run. That's, a, you know, the logical extension of their argument when the article literally has a picture of a mouse on a wheel. That's literally the image it conjures just turns humans into that. Incredibly ironic.